You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. I'm your host, Ramin Sheff. Our guest on today's episode is one of my personal favorite writers and thinkers in the tech ecosystem today, Morgan Housel. Morgan's a partner at the Collaborative Fund and joined the team after a more conventional financial background over the past decade, first as an investment banker, then a private equity investor, and ultimately a columnist for The Motley Fool and Wall Street Journal. Morgan's an incredibly originalist thinker, and it's routinely evident in the provocativeness and depth of the pieces he puts out, intertwining elements of psychology, history, philosophy, and investing, and often drawing on first-principle connections that don't superficially meet the eye. So without further ado, Morgan, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Morgan, it's you know it's great to have you on the show. I think you know you're one of the best writers out there today, and and really thoroughly enjoy your originalist thinking. And I want to cover a bunch of topics today, uh, many of which fall at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, and investing, as as your writing typically does. But let's start with what you do for a living as a venture investor, and how you think about the focus of venture as an asset class. You know, Mark Andreessen famously paraphrased this idea of venture as an asset class that bets fundamentally on change. And he described the point vividly by discussing the way Andreessen Horowitz invests versus how Warren Buffett invests, noting that you know, Buffett bets on things that never change, whereas Andreessen Horowitz bets on things that do change. Ultimately, whether an industry changes and how much it changes determines which investor is correct. You've taken this line of thinking a bit deeper and said it's actually not as simple as betting on change versus no change. At the most fundamental level, it's really betting on who will win in the no change game. You know, will it be an incumbent like Geico, a Buffett investment, or a new disruptive startup, you know, something a venture firm would classically invest in? And if you look at the examples of you know, game-changing companies these days, Airbnb, Uber, Wealthfront, the new entrants winning aren't winning because of change. They're winning because they're getting closest to the principles that consumers have always wanted. Better choice, more convenience, lower prices, and more transparency. Talk a little bit more you know, about your thought process and how you came to this idea. Before I, I, I came into private equity, it was mainly in, let's call it, large-cap public equities. I worked in private equity for a while. I worked in investment banking. So I've kind of seen a spectrum of, of, uh, of different styles of investing. And I always like to compare what's the same and what's different. And I think when people talk about venture capital, it's often portrayed as maybe uh, the, the most different type of investing when compared to others. But I actually see that there's quite a bit of overlap between venture and even public equities. Like the, there's so much that we're trying to do that's the same, which is just kind of uh, buy good companies, hold a diverse portfolio, diverse portfolio of them, understand that a certain percentage are not going to work out, but that entail that some will do really well. And I think, you know, talking about the topic of change versus no change, I think in any investment, no matter what it is, whether that's a public investment or a venture capital deal, there's some element of change that's going to drive growth. And there's some element of things staying the same that's going to drive long-term sustainable compounding. So just think about the example of a company like Amazon, which, you know, 20 years ago was basically a, a venture-backed startup and is now the largest company in the world. You know, uh, when Amazon launched in 1997, it had a tagline on its website that said, uh, uh, low prices, lots of selection, or something to that effect. That is the most timeless principle of what consumers want, you know, that's been around for hundreds, not thousands of years. Low prices, good selection, that's so timeless. It's been around forever. And that will also be the case 20, 30, 50, 200 years from now. That will be something that consumers want. 
And that was from day one when Amazon was a startup with the foundation of its of its value proposition. And now, of course, Amazon has has innovated a lot. A lot of things were different in terms of you know, uh, you know how they were delivering to customers, how they set up their business. And of course, now as the years have gone on, going into AWS and Prime and whatnot, they've innovated on so much stuff. But their core offering is something that's always stayed the same. And you know, even a, 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 a company like, like Airbnb, of course, is different and it's very innovative. And there's so much stuff that is things changing within Airbnb uh, and, and just that concept of, of a business model. But there's so much in there that stays the same. Customers want a place to sleep tonight. They're traveling to a place where they don't have a home. They want a place to stay. That idea has been around for thousands of years. Um, so there's, there's always an element of both change and sustainability within investments. I think if you're talking about a large cap public company, it's more things staying the same and less about change. You know, maybe it's, uh, it's 80-20, whereas in a, in a startup, it's 80% change, but there's still that 20% of just timeless principles of how consumers behave and how the economy works. So I, I, I just don't think it's as black and white as saying VCs bet on change and Warren Buffett bet on no change. I understand how that's yeah, I like the I like the way you laid it out, and I think the the interesting kind of phenomena there is you know, the companies, whether it's startups or whether it's incumbents, um, you know the the ones that succeed kind of in these timeless principles are the ones where disproportionately value creation goes. And I want to dive into that kind of disproportionate value creation piece because. You know, I think a very well-known phenomenon in venture is this idea of power laws, right? A handful of investments produce the majority of returns. Um, but you make this actually pretty interesting argument that power laws, though you know we perceive them to be highly, highly unique to venture, actually aren't that unique at all. And pretty much every major value creation event in the world is a tail event. So talk about how the tail extends beyond venture and, and kind of the virtuous cycle that accrues to winners and, and the beneficiaries. Yeah, I mean, let's just look at uh, at, at public markets again. If you look at the composition of the S&P 500 or any broad index over a long period of time, or even on, on, on a year-to-year basis, the majority of the returns in uh, 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 the, the majority of returns among 500 companies in the S&P 500 are always driven by fewer than 10 companies. So lately, it's been Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, those companies. 20 years ago, it was Dell, Walmart, GE. 20 years before that, it was uh, it was IBM and AT&T and still GE. There's always been, even among the 500 clustered companies, there's always been a few that drive the majority of returns. And that's particularly in, in, public, in public markets because the indexes are market cap weighted, so the big companies get much more weight, and therefore they have much more influence within there. But it's still uh, tail events. And even if you were to look at a 20- or a 30-year period in public markets, you would see that about 40% of public companies uh, during a, a 20- or 30-year period effectively go out of business. They lose most of their value and never recover. Just like you would expect in VC, where a VC might make 100 investments knowing that half of them are, gonna, are not going to work at all. It's effectively the same thing in public markets. It happens a lot slower in public markets. You might see that distribution play out in VC in two or three years, where it might take 20 or 30 years in public markets, but it's still over long periods of time driven by tails. And then you think about, well, what companies are driving uh, those returns? Let's look at a company like, like Apple or Amazon. Within Apple, what is driving almost all of Apple's uh, value over the last uh, uh, 10 or 11 years is the iPhone. 
the iPhone itself within Apple is a tailwind. Apple has created dozens of different products. One of them, the iPhone, just absolutely took off orders of magnitude uh, more, uh, more financially beneficial than others. And even if you can just keep drilling down within Apple, you know, who is building these products? These are employees who, uh, you know, were the, the one out of a hundred pick to get to work at Apple. They went to schools that had a 1% acceptance rate or a 5% acceptance rate. So you just keep going down and in every different layer you look at, it's all tail events. Or you can look at a company like Amazon where so much of Amazon's value in the last 10 years has been driven by AWS and Prime. Those themselves within Amazon are tail products. Amazon has tried the Fire Phone. They've tried all these different products, but two of them, Prime and AWS, just took off like wildfire. So there's tail events almost anywhere that we look. I think they're 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 most associated with something like venture just because of the speed in which tail events happen. You can make a hundred venture investments, and within two years, you have an Uber that is just you know hundreds of times more valuable than others. Whereas it, it just happens slower uh, the larger companies get. But it's still it's important to recognize that those happen everywhere. I think it's important to recognize because no matter what you're doing, how you're investing, whether it's on the venture side of the spectrum or the large cap public equity side of the spectrum, it's important to realize that by design and by efficiency and what you should absolutely expect as a normal operation of business is that a lot of things are not going to work. A lot of things are going to fail, and that's necess- and that's not necessarily a bad thing because you know that there's going to be a smaller sector of things that work very well that more than offset to those losses. If people aren't willing and ready and prepared to deal with those losses, I think it becomes disheartening for people when they do experience the the downside of those tail events when something doesn't work. You have ten companies in your portfolio that are doing really poorly and failing without realizing that that's actually a perfectly normal and expected part of how investing works. I think laying out the phenomena the way you did is is actually one of the most important people of one of the most important concepts and things for people to understand, right? I think a little bit of the sensationalism of you know the twenty four seven news cycle as well as you know startups going through some of this disproportionate value creation really, really quickly. It's you know it's fantastic, right? It's fantastic that there's technological progress. Starting a company is easier than ever. Barriers to entry are lower. There's massive value creation to be had, but it also produces a pretty dangerous phenomenon on the other hand, right? You see lots of people, you know, bankers, lawyers, consultants, kind of the periphery business type folk, becoming angel investors when they likely shouldn't be, right? I mean, the the data itself, um, you know, talks about how most investments are going to lose money, and at the very least, won't cross. You know the hurdle rate of dollar cost averaging with the low fee index fund. You you have pretty interesting guiding principles that on investing generally that I think espouse this phenomenon. You know, one is the point of investing is not to minimize boredom but maximize returns, uh, and the second is be patient and you actually don't need that many smart decisions to do well over time. So talk a little bit more about you know these and, and your perspectives on what you see in the capital markets today. Well, I think in terms of you know. Uh, uh, not to minimize boredom, but to maximize returns. I think it's, you know, that's just kind of a, 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 a smart-ass way of saying that a lot of, there's a, a big pull in investing towards complication with the idea that if something is more complicated, it's going to be more effective. And I think there's a pull because that is true in many fields. In, uh, in, in sports, people who, who train 10 hours a day, uh, you know, with, you know, more, with, most complicated diets and the best trainers are probably going to perform better than people who don't. Uh, in engineering, or if you're building a skyscraper, like having your calculations be as precise as they can is going to make you a better engineer than someone who's just kind of winging it. 
So in most fields, complication does lead to better results. I just think investing is not one of those fields. And it's, it's not one of those fields because investing is overwhelmingly a behavioral exercise. And you can be the smartest uh, financier in the world, get you know, have the best grades on all the financial exams, and know all the calculations. You can calculate EBITDA down to the fifth decimal point. You know everything about finance. But if you don't have the proper temperament to match with it, none of it's going to matter. And so that's what I mean when I say investing is mainly a behavioral field. And since it's a behavioral field that is where you have to manage the emotions and the psychology of investing before the technical parts of it matter, um, that's why uh, that you know, the pull towards complexity doesn't necessarily correlate with results because a lot of people go towards complexity and by dealing with complex investments, making really precise calculations and trying to think that they can forecast with a certain level of precision actually makes the behavioral part of it kind of spin backwards and that's when people get overconfident and they get emotional and they get over leveraged and those are the emotions that are really going to drive investment returns or the lack thereof over time. So that's, you know, I, I've always been a big, a big proponent of keeping investing principles uh, as simple as they can. And I don't just mean that for novice investors. I think that is especially true. It is even more true for highly educated professional investors because those are the people that I think are much more likely to fool themselves into thinking that complication has a positive correlation with outcome and results in investing. Um, those are the kind of people that are going to start building really complicated forecasting models and fool themselves into an amount of overconfidence that's going to lead to poor results. So when I talk about this stuff, I think it's easy to interpret as, oh, this is a good basic uh, basic principle for beginners. I think it's actually targeted at the smartest, most educated, and our most highly connected people in the industry to take a simple idea and take it seriously. Because the simple ideas that are the most effective in investing are the ones that people with the most education start to discount, if not ignore, uh, the smarter and more connected that they get into it. So you have this you you kind of have this notion of saying okay let's say let's say you solve the behavioral piece right let's say you solve the temperament um, managing through stress whatever it might be how how do you think about combating bias right um, you you made the observation before personal experiences make up you know some infinitesimally small percentage of what's actually happened in the world but eighty plus percent of the way that you know you as an individual think the world thinks. So even in a world in which, you know, let's say you're the technically most proficient in a world in which you've, you know, manage your emotions and temperament and psychology uh, most effectively, how do you think about adjusting for the lens of, you know, bias as an investor? I think the, the, the most honest answer, and the answer that people probably don't want to hear, but the most honest answer is it's really difficult. I would love to be able to tell you, oh, to manage your bias, all you have to do is read this book and follow this formula and then you're all set not like that at all because these are uh, behavioral elements that have been ingrained through human evolution over hundreds of thousands of years. It's not something that we in 2018 can say, oh, here's the solution, let's figure it out. So the first answer is it's very, very difficult. And there's no firm solutions to where you can truly master it. I, I don't think anyone in the world is, is unemotional with money. I, I don't think that exists. I think there are people that are counter-emotional in terms of when uh, the market is rising really fast and they get scared or vice versa. But I don't think anyone is, is a-emotional. I just don't think that exists with, with virtually any human being with their money. And then, so because of that, I think rather than saying, how can I fix this? I think the first step is saying, I probably can't fix this. This is just who I am. But the first step is saying, let's try to, let's try to be more introspective about myself and how I think about greed and fear, how I react to 
past, past crises. How did I react in 1999 or 2008? How did I think about the world then? Uh, what are the best decisions and the worst decisions that I've made with money? And let's be more introspective about why I did that, what was going through my head at the time. If you keep a journal now, the big financial decisions that you make, I think that's really helpful to go back and see what was I thinking at the time? How did that play out? What, what did I miss? So I think just being more cognizant of how you yourself have acted in the past is really important. And I say in the past because a lot of times when investors are thinking about the behavioral element of investing, they try to project how they might respond in the future. So they say, okay, sitting here today in 2018, how might I react during the next recession, during the next pullback, during the next meltdown, whatever you want to call it? They try to, they try to put themselves in the future and say, how will that feel? And I think that's actually a very dangerous thing to do because when you try to project how you might feel in the future, there's a lot of evidence that all you're really doing is extrapolating how you feel today. So if you feel great today, as a lot of us do, because, you know, markets have done really well, PC's done really well, it's a, it's a boom time all around for most of the last decade, a lot of people, when they're trying to project how they might feel in the next crisis, uh, it's very difficult to project how you actually feel because all you're doing is extrapolating today's opposite. And uh, the reverse was true 10 years ago, 2009, when people were trying to think about the future. And it was very hard to think about the future without extrapolating, without extrapolating the pessimism that they had in 2009. So I think rather than trying to project yourself into the future and basing your thoughts about risk through that lens, it's much more useful to just look at the past and say, how have I responded to adverse events or really positive events in the past? How did I respond to 1999, 2000? How did I respond in 2008? What did I do with my money? Like, not what was, not, not how did I feel and how might I think in the future, but what did I do in 2008 with my money? Did you sell? Did you buy? Did you take it as a big, uh, you know, a, a big opportunity to, to change your career and whatnot? I think those decisions that you made are probably going to be a pretty good reflection of how you're likely to respond and react in the future, rather than projecting how you think you'll do it. So going back in the past and saying, what did I actually do? That's me. And once you get a better view of who you are from a behavioral lens, then I think you can build an investing process and a portfolio around that rather than uh, a projection of how you feel or think about you in the future and trying to base your investments around uh, that image of yourself versus the reality of how you behave in the past. Yep. I really like that emphasis on, on introspection because I think you know one of the first ways to combat you know the whole bias uh, piece is just raw self-awareness, right? The actual just self-awareness of understanding that the delta between, you know, 0.0001% and 80% is significantly material, right? And I think there's an element of shoring that piece up by introspecting and focusing specifically internally on, you know, what you have done in, in the past and how might you react. I think there's another external piece, though, which is, you know, the concept of learning, right? We live probably in the best age time of being able to see you know, everybody and anybody's thoughts and having more access to information in 2018 than, you know, historically has ever been possible. I think that can be a downside as well, right? There can be a content overload. And if you don't focus the right way, you can be, you know, continuously drowned in information. So I'm, I'm interested to talk a little bit about, you know, your philosophy on learning. And, and when I say learning, I, I mean, both from a temporal perspective and multidisciplinary. So let's start with the temporal, you know, with the onslaught of information, I was just mentioning, you know, perspectives available on the internet, um, it's easy to get drowned. You know, I've recently found myself trying to significantly tighten up my reading patterns. You know, in one sense, I try to focus on only things that I can read, you know, in very short bites or, or long forms, which are books, right? 
And a, another way I've started to kind of cut that lens has been with your idea of expiring versus permanent knowledge. So talk a little bit about, you know, the expiring permanent knowledge dichotomy. Yeah, I think it starts with the observation that you hinted at, which is there's, there's too much information to read out there. And most of it is not worth reading, but even if you narrow it down to the, the you know, good writing by smart people, there's still too much of it for any person to read uh, and not just become completely overwhelmed by that fire hose. So you need some sort of filter. You have to have a smart filter on what am I going to read today, what am I going to pay attention to, because I can't pay attention to everything. So what can I pay attention to? And I think just a, a framework that I thought about for my own reading and my own learning is uh, before I start reading something, asking the question, will I still care about this in one year or five years or ten years? And if the answer is no, then maybe I shouldn't read it. And maybe I should try to find something that is going to be relevant uh, one year or five years uh, in, in the future. A lot of the steps from, I used to be a columnist in the Wall Street Journal, and something that the editors really wanted was to tie whatever you were writing to the, the current week's news cycle. No matter what you were writing, if it, if it didn't tie into what was happening in, you know, in the last seven days, you know, like what the market did last Thursday, then they didn't consider the article that relevant. And I just vehemently disagreed with that. And I thought, I took the exact opposite view of saying, uh, if this article is not relevant to me one year from now, then there's no use in me reading because I'm a long-term investor. I'm investing for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So why do I care about an article that is only relevant to this week's news cycle? It just made no sense to me. So that's a framework that I've tried to use when I'm reading everything. It's just kind of like a quick first-pass filter of just reading the headline in the first paragraph and immediately asking, is this is this short term? Is this expiring news? And that's not necessarily a negative thing. There's a lot of expiring news that I think is really relevant um, and is and is written by smart people. But if I have to have a filter, if I'm really trying to obtain long term knowledge and I have to have a filter on my reading, I I, I only want to read an article that is going to be just as relevant to, my, to myself um, one year from now, and ten years from now, and twenty years from now. I try to do that with articles that I write as well. I always want. I don't know if I I think it's interesting because I, I actually think you do succeed at it very well compared to, compared to pretty much all writers out there. And I, I think it's it's why some of the pieces, you know, lately that have come out, like Principles by Ray Dalio, for example, I think it's why it's gotten such fanfare because it's completely, it's permanent knowledge, right? It's it's not expiring by any means. And I think even when you think about, you know, when I, when I kind of think about or curate the information that I read, if I think about building businesses, the, the pieces that I'm very confident are not going to change, you know, in the next 20 years are pieces around, you know, interpersonal skills, leadership, how to manage a team, how to hire, et cetera, right? Industries might be affected by technology. You might hire differently, right? You might have a significant proportion of work that's being done today, disrupted by technology and, you know, not needing people, et cetera. But the fundamental concept of company creation being oriented around hiring, management, you know, as long as humans are around, those those principles are timeless, right? Understanding and knowing about... One other way to, yeah, go ahead. I just said one, other, one kind of tidbit that's, that, that has always, uh, has always uh, been interesting to me on this topic is the book The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham was 
first published in the 1930s or the 1940s, it still sells more than 100,000 copies per year today. Uh, I mean, which is just unheard of for an investment book. And the reason why is because every sentence in that book is timeless. It's as relevant today as it was back then um, versus a lot of investment books, even really good investment books. But most of them tend to be, uh, where is the economy going to go over the next five years? How should investors uh, invest their money today? What are the next new industries? And a lot of them are good books, but they're not, they're relevant to a short period of time. Whereas a book like, like, uh, like The Intelligent Investor is as relevant today as it was in 1940, and it'll be relevant 50 years from now. That's why people keep buying it. And I think that is both from a learning perspective and a content creator's perspective. That's the sweet spot that you want to spend most of your time in. And so how do you extend beyond, so let's, let's say you solve for temporal learning, right? How do you move on and kind of think about multidisciplinary learning? So, you know, by background, you're a World War II aficionado. A lot of your pieces show a relational link between, you know, an event in history and investing patterns or behavior psychology. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because to your point of you know, your pieces being timeless or the concept of the most valuable knowledge being timeless, I think it shows when you're able to tie an event from World War II to, you know, present day psychology that people can relate with. Um, Josh Wolf of LuxVC, yeah. you know, is another investor I think does this particularly well. He recently had a tweet storm comparing, you know, patterns of synaptic connections in your brain as we age to entrance in an industry over time. Again, one of those things that, you know, is just, is timeless, but is also highly multiple, multidisciplinary, right? So what's your general philosophy on multidisciplinary learning and, and what have you found is the right balance and how to allocate mindshare? Yeah, I think a few principles of it is one, just the uh, realization that all investing is just a, that investing is not just a study of finance, it's a study of how people behave with money. And because it's a behavioral field, it incorporates the lessons from all kinds of other fields that are also study behavior, like military history and sociology and psychology and politics. A lot of these fields basically can be summed up as how do humans respond to risk and incentive? That's what a lot of political history is, that's what most of sociology is, that's what relationships are, you know, personal relationships and marriages, like that study, and that's what investing is too. So the first is just a realization that there are the, the Venn diagram of all these different fields has a lot more overlap than people think. And it's hard to come to terms with that because most of these fields are taught as distinct, independent, standalone uh, fields. Uh, there's more multidisciplinary learning today than I think there's ever been, but it's a pretty new development. Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist uh, you know, who, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's uh, a psychologist, he talked about in the 1960s and 70s when he was a psychologist, but he would knock on the door of his, of his accounting um, colleagues at, at, at his university to try to do work with them. And there was a lot of pushback. Like, why would an economist want to work with a psychologist? Those are two completely separate fields. And I think we have a better appreciation now that there's much more linkage between those. But I think there's still it's still easy to compartmentalize learning as distinct topics rather than you know a piece of the puzzle. And the puzzle is how do humans behave in the real world, which is kind of what most fields are trying to solve for. And then the, the other element of it is if something is is true in one field but doesn't carry over to a next field, it's probably not that important of a discovery. If you have uh, a a a discovery in psychology, but once you take that discovery about how humans behave in a certain situation, but it doesn't, it doesn't work if those people are from a different generation or from a different country or if they're, you know, in slightly different circumstances, it's probably not that powerful of discovery. 
So what you're really looking for are uh, mental models or just theories and ideas that work across multiple different uh, different industries and different uh, different eras, different cultures, societies, different types of investment. Like we were talking about earlier with tail events. That's you know the, the idea of tails, you know, you know, comes from statistics, but you see it in biology, and you see it in sociology, you see it in wealth distribution, you see it in venture capital, you see it in public equities. That's an idea that spans so many different topics. It's a really important idea. And the more topics an idea spans across, the more important that it is. So that if you start making these connections between, hey, there's this idea that I that I came across from military history, but I also see it in biology. Wow, that's interesting. And I've also seen it in physics, and I've also seen it in politics, and I've also seen it in investing. That's when you get something that is really powerful. Charlie Munger called that a lollipop. Things start really connecting together. Um, so that, that's kind of the other element of multidisciplinary learning. A great quote that I love from Patrick O'Shaughnessy, the investor, is that he has uh, a monthly book club that he shares kind of with some friends, book reviews and, and book recommendations. And he sent out an email a couple of years ago. The subject line of the email was, the best investing books of 2016. That was the subject line. And the first paragraph in the email said, since it is better to read around your field rather than in your field, there are no investing books on this list. <laughs> and I just love that concept of reading around your field rather than in your field. I almost never read any investment books anymore. I just want to read books about that give me like, a little bit more insight to how people behave uh, to risk and incentive. And I think by doing that, I'll learn a lot about investing, but I'm not going out of my way to learn anything new about investing. It just kind of happens through a multidisciplinary approach. That's really interesting. I like I, I really like that approach in terms of not reading, you know, specifically in your field and, and broadening out. I think one of the interesting things is, you know, I, I like what we've talked about on the temporal piece as well as the multidisciplinary piece. I, I abide by them both completely. I think the interesting kind of next observation or next step is a, a lot of people can intellectually rationalize, right, and, and understand both of these concepts and, and probably even put them, you know, into practice from the perspective of absorbing knowledge pretty well. I think where the drop-off happens, you know, most often is is the actual tie between you know, mentally and, and rationally understanding versus application. Um, and you you had a piece up, uh, I think, pretty recently called "Useful Hacks," and I want to quote a part of it because I think it's it's you know, really good. Kind of, there's some really good nuggets in there for for the listeners, but I think it ties very deeply to this undercurrent of not matching, you know, intellectual kind of honesty and appreciation with with actual application. So. You wrote, and I quote, everyone wants a shortcut. It's always been this way, but I suspect it's getting worse as technology inflates our benchmark on how fast results should happen. Hacks are appealing because they look like paths to prizes without the effort, which in the real world rarely exists. A few of the only useful hacks I know include diet hack, burn more calories than you consume, fitness hack, sweat and lift heavy stuff, writing hack, write every day for years, learning hack, read a book, one finished, read another an investing hack. Give com- give compounding the decades it requires. A ton to uncover there, but l- let's focus on two things. You know, one is the piece that I alluded to and you know prior to the quote, which is, you know, even though it isn't psychologically difficult, you know, to understand, why is it so challenging, you know, to execute against? Uh, and and then the second idea is um, you know, we can talk about it from an investment perspective. I think it's more interesting um from a non-investment perspective, is, is the idea of compounding, right? It's explicit in your investing hack. You know, every, you could probably, if, 
you know, if you and I did a web scrape of every publication out there, I bet every single day some publication is writing an article about how compounded, uh, compounding is you know, the newest phenomenon. It's so important and everybody should know about it, right? It's explicit in the world of investing. But I think it's highly implicit in all these other hacks, right? Too often do I think we think about compounding in the investment sense, but really I think all outsized returns, whether it's fitness, diet, writing, learning, relationships, whatever it might be, you know, are, are actually a result of compounding. So I know a lot to unpack there, but talk a little bit about that idea of matching you know, intellectual convi- conviction and knowledge with actual application, um, as, as well as the idea of compounding. Yeah. Well, I think the first, you know, the first rule of economics, economics 101, is the idea of price. That if you want something, you have to pay a price for it. If you want something that's, that's great, you have to pay a higher price for it. Something that's really great is going to be really expensive. That's the whole foundation of economics, right? And I think what people are looking for uh, learning, when they're trying to move from learning to application, I think they, uh, without thinking about it, they drop the idea of price. And what people are looking for is not a price that they can pay. What people are always looking for, how can I sneak through the back door without having to pay the price? How can I, like, where is the where is the 100% off coupon? How can I climb over the fence to the main park without paying the admission ticket? No one wants to pay the price. Uh, they, they, they want the reward without the price. They're always looking for those hacks. But I think the first rule of economics is that, no, you have to pay the price. If you try to sneak through the back door, you're probably going to get caught and kicked out. And then so you look at something like compounding. Almost everyone who invests understands mathematically how compounding works. It's not a difficult concept. But it's hard, it's elusive in practice because no one wants to pay the price. And the price is leave something alone for 30 years. No one wants to do that. People want to say, how can I get rich over the next six months? Or the next five years, let's say. Uh, or you think about something like you know, diet and exercise. It's hard. It's hard to go to bed hungry when you want a bowl of ice cream. That, that's painful. No one wants to, that, there's, that's a price you have to give. And if you don't, if you don't have the, the, the grit to give it, you're probably not going to get the reward. So, you know, there's a, a quote I like from, uh, from Scott Adams, who was the Dilbert creator, who he said, a really useful piece of life advice for a lot of topics is whatever you're trying to do, figure out what the price is and then pay that price. Uh, and that's, that's really important. I think in investing, for public investing, is dealing with volatility. Market's going to fall 30% here and there. It's going to fall 50% a couple times in your lifetime. That's the price. Putting up with that is the price that you have to pay in order to obtain the long-term results the market is giving you. Dealing with uncertainty, dealing with setback and adversity, these are all prices uh, that the market is trying to charge you. But they're giving you something in return if you are willing to pay those prices. If you're willing to put in, uh, if you're willing to put to pay that price, the amusement park in which you're paying for admission is actually a really fun amusement park. You have to be willing to pay that price. But so I, I think that's why I, I kind of got frustrated with, with the idea of hacks. That everyone is always looking for hacks. Uh, in, 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 you know, to, to get to get the reward without having to pay the price. And I started that article talking about social media. And there's a lot of social media consultants out there who will come into your organization and say, here's how you can do social media better, here's, here's how you use hashtags, here's the right kind of game, the posts, whatnot. And I just think all of it is nonsense. I think the only thing that works in social media is write good content. Write stuff that people want to read. That's all that matters. Everything else about a hashtag and timing and all of it is, is so marginally important, if not unimportant, next to this 800-pound this gorilla, just write good stuff that people want to read. But 
and no one wants to hear that because writing good stuff, writing witty content, writing interesting content, it's hard. hard. Yeah. It's really difficult. It takes <laughs> a lot of creativity. But so no one wants to pay that price. What they want is the hack of, oh, all I have to do is add a hashtag at the end of my tweet, and then next step I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have a million followers. That's what people want to hear. So I think if you just get, you know, grab reality with both hands and understand, just always remember the concept of price. Uh, and not actual a dollar sign price, but just the emotional toll that a lot of things take in life. Like how much do you have to put in to get the reward? And if you're always thinking about that, I think you'll be uh, you'll be a lot more careful. I think with your goals and how you allocate your day, how you allocate your, your resources. But you also be, I think, become a lot more tolerant to setback and pain because you view it as not as this is something bad that's happening to me. You view it as oh, this is just the invoice that I'm getting. Uh, from the topic that I'm trying to pursue right now. But this is a natural, normal invoice that is worth the cost. So it both makes you more careful and more tolerant of kind of step back in adversity. Yeah, and I, I think if you if you drill down and you kind of take that approach of, uh, you know, being able to tolerate with the long-term version of it, whether it's investing or any of these other things, just breaking these pieces, breaking these goals, breaking whatever it is into its component parts, makes it significantly more, you know, likely from a mental perspective, I think, that you can achieve it. It's very hard to say, hey, you know, I'm going to gain 20 pounds of muscle and, you know, this, that, and the other. But if you kind of, if you drill it down and say, you know what, that means 10 push-ups every single day. It just means 10 push-ups every day for five years. And oh, by the way, it means, you know, eating the right way, you know, and it, it just every day, little, little things. It's it's the concept over over a long period of time, you know, whatever it is, uh, you're, you're naturally, you're just going to get, you're going to get better at it. Right. And you're going to get the rewards of for it. If you, if you look over a long period of time. So it's interesting. I, I want to yeah. focus, you know, I, I want to dive a little bit, you know, separately and just focus on two pieces of psychology before we add, you know, the first is this idea of the immeasurably important and our tendency to systematically undervalue what we cannot measure. You know, YC is this formula, famous formula for startup success, which is, you have to multiply product times team times idea times execution, all four variables you can absolutely control, and multiply it by a luck coefficient of zero to 10,000 to know if you're failing next year or you're going to be the next Airbnb. I think the idea of luck is really simple to grasp, but its application in our day-to-day and the learning we draw is really difficult. And it's just one example of the immeasurable, but talk about that idea and your perspective on you know the role it plays in life and how oftentimes, because it actually is you know so difficult to measure, we systematically undervalue it and, and kind of push it to the side. Well, I think one thing I've always thought about luck is luck is it's just the opposite side of the coin of, of risk. Luck and risk are pretty much the exact same thing, just moving in a different direction. They're both just the idea that there are things that happen in the world that are outside of your control that have a big impact on results. So most people, I think, are very familiar and willing to talk about and accept risk because when something bad happens to them, when they're in an investment that loses, well, you know, we got hit by by all these risks, and you know, we got, you know, if you look at the odds, you know, there's a 20% chance that this is going to work, and you know, unfortunately, we fell into that bucket. Most people understand the probabilities of risk, but I think most people don't want to extend that and say, actually, luck is the exact same thing. It's just it's the other the other side of the same coin. But there are things that can happen to you in life and in business that are completely outside of your control that have a big impact on results. And luck is just the positive side of that of risk. I think is very natural to want to uh, pretend that it doesn't exist. 
Because when something bad happens to you, you want to chalk it up to risk to justify it to yourself. But when something great happens to you, if you have a very successful company or may have made a very successful investment, you're successful in your career, you don't want to say, it's, it's unnatural to want to say, well, that was all, I just got really lucky. You want to say, no, I've worked my ass off in the past five years, and this is what came of it. Um, and since we, I think, underestimate luck just because it's, much more uncomfortable to think about and, uh, and admit to yourself risk, it becomes something that we systematically underestimate. And I think that's why uh, a lot of, maybe this is slightly going in a different direction, but I, I've always been fascinated by the number of very successful people that ended up going broke. And, uh, you know, people, whether that was, you know, an entrepreneur or an investor who had at one point in their life more money than they ever know to do. And ended up losing most, if not all of it. And I think it's because a lot of the same traits that you need for success are also the same traits that will set you up for failure. So being willing to swing from the fences, being able to take risks that others aren't, being able to push the envelope, being able, to, you know, the willingness to try new things—those are all traits that you need for success. Those are also traits that push you closer to failure. And when you think of it that way, you start realizing that luck and risk are really the same. You know, they're they're on the same spectrum on the opposite sides of each other, but they're, they're closely related cousins. Um, and I think a lot of, for a lot of people, the more, the more lucky they get, the more systematically they, they underestimate the role of luck, and that's going to push them closer towards risk, because that's when, if you, if you think that you know, the success that you've had is truly a product of just what you put into it and underestimated the role of luck, you're much more likely to double down on what you've done in the past leverage, whether that's financial leverage or just, uh, you know, just pushing harder on techniques and ideas that you've done in the past. And if you don't appreciate the role of luck in your life, you probably just keep pushing on what's worked in the past until you realize uh, that what, you know, that luck played a big role in your in, in the past. And when you hit it, an area where it's not luck, but risk that you're into, it's going to backfire spectacularly on you. So I, I, I've just become, I think, more humble for both uh, successes and failures, and I've become much more unwilling to criticize losers and praise winners. You know, I still do that to some degree, but I tend to look at both as, look, both were probably pushing the envelope, and you ended up on a different side of the spectrum. And that's not to say that, you know, was Bill Gates lucky? Yes, but he's also incredibly talented as well. There's no denying any of that. But if you just put it on on skill alone, I think you're really underestimating a lot of how the world works, which can make it more difficult for you to understand what might happen next. Yeah, I think the mathematical formula to put it to the Bill Gates example is one that's often been talked about. You know, Zuckerberg, Facebook, and and the rest of the social media companies that were you know in the thick of it when when Facebook was starting out and really broke away, which is. You know, Zuckerberg's a phenomenal executive. Facebook's an unbelievable company, right? One of, if not the rocket ships of you know the last twenty years, including Google. Uh, but this idea or this notion that you know Zuckerberg as an executive, when you think about just the value creation of Facebook compared, you know, to all those companies that you know either went out of business or you know were were very very small and ended up getting acquired, the idea that you know his competence level, intelligence level, his capabilities, capacities, etc., or you know even actually don't worry about him, but you know one of the key people on his team, right? One of the key engineering people compared to a key engineering person on one of the other teams was, you know, a difference of, you know, 10 million X in, in capability or capacity is probably not right. Right. Uh, 
Um, so it's no, it's a it's a it's a very interesting phenomenon. And I, I want to end, you know, with a final question on uh, and actually two different sets of emotions, right? Greed and fear. And the past month, you know, you wrote one of the most you know thought provoking articles, certainly that I've ever read, called "The Life Cycle of Greed and Fear." And you know, if you could synthesize the key learnings from the piece, you know, what would they be? And and what do you think young people specifically? should internalize from, from the piece. And I single out, you know, when I say young people, I mean people that are starting out you know, in their early careers in 20 to 30 ish, I single out that age range. Um, because I think, again, it's, it's a timeless piece. It actually affects all age ranges, but I think that age range is actually in the thick of probably being affected by those observations really for the first time, or at, at, the, at least at the velocity or the, the scale of, um, of being on the recipient end of, of those observations uh, for, for the first time. So talk, talk a little bit more about the article. What inspired you to write it? Well, I've always, just, I've always been fascinated. You know, my career has really, really started when I graduated college in 2008, uh, kind of right at the, you know, the center of the financial crisis. So my, my whole career, you know, which is you know, a little over a decade now, has been uh, uh, living through and just thinking about the financial crisis. And I think we've just been through an amazing cycle of greed and fear, um, starting with fear in 2008. And are, are we in a greedy zone today? Like by a lot of elements, yeah. If you compare today's world in 2008 to see how much we've changed in everything, not just financial metrics, but just what people talk about and what people write about, it's just been a fascinating cycle to watch. And that cycle has, of course, been repeated all throughout history, of just going from greed to fear. So I've always been just interested in the life cycle of that, of that, uh, that change, because it, it's not black and white. People don't go from greed to fear overnight. There's a, there's a cycle that happens, and there's, like a, there's a growth curve that happens within there. It just starts with the idea that people want to be right. People want to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm making good decisions today. The decisions that I've made in business and in life and in my investments are good, and they were the right decisions. Everyone wants to say that. It's hard to make it through the day if you can't look in the mirror in the morning and say that to yourself. So people just want to be right, and then since they want to be right, they justify their decisions. Um, and they, they go throughout the day, you know, even decisions that didn't work, they go throughout the day and say, well, you know, it didn't work, uh, it was the right decision because of X, Y, and Z. People don't like to admit bad decisions to themselves. So since you just start justifying your ideas, it becomes easy to become complacent about what else is happening in the world. And complacency leads to, um, you know, higher risk-taking, and higher risk-taking is going to lead to things really starting to spin in the other direction and work against you. And then when things start working against you, you, you go from uh, growth mode and trying to capture gains to a mode of preservation, self-preservation, to preserve the idea that you want to be right, you don't want to be, you don't want to be humiliated in front of your colleagues and your peers. And then, so once you get into preservation mode, that's when you start taking, you know, we move from uh, looking for opportunities to trying to save what you have, and that's really when fear sets in. And so I, I think there's a, there's a cycle of it that goes on that we should all be aware of. It happens within our own careers, it happens in businesses, it happens across financial markets. Um, and I just think it, this all comes back to just the idea of being introspective about how you think yourself. I think a lot of that article was kind of thinking about times in my life, not just in investing, but in all kinds of relationships or school or whatnot that I've that I think I've personally gone through the the greed and fear cycle. I'm just trying to think like what was going through my mind in those periods. 
So I think that's that article was, was kind of a reflection of how I've how I've thought about it myself. Yeah, I think it was so relatable because uh, I can't imagine one person, you know, I was reading it and it felt exactly like I was reading. I could point to observations in, in my life or points in my life where I felt, you know, the same exact things. I think a lot of why it picked up the fanfare it did on on Twitter, et cetera, is because it's a it's a completely relatable, relatable article. Well, Morgan, you know, this has been a great conversation and really, really enjoyed it. You know, learned a lot today and excited to continue to read you know, the thought-provoking content you continue to put out and, and follow your investing career at Collaborative Fund. So thanks again for coming on, and we really enjoyed having you. Thanks very much.